Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan. It is the beginning of the offseason for most UConn sports, unfortunately, but we do have a lot to talk about. Uh, for starters, UConn baseball season comes to an end in the NCAA tournament. They lost in the South Bend Regional to first to Notre Dame. 26 to three, yikes. Uh, and then in the double elimination, they they lost to Central Michigan, 14-9. That was the end for UConn baseball. We did have some high hopes for what they might be able to accomplish. Reactions from this past weekend and the end of the baseball season. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought things were going to be pretty good. I know, Dan, we talked about it on the last podcast. We thought this was a winnable regional. And we were big wrong, but it looked like we were going to be right after that six to one win over Michigan. Uh, and it was pretty convincing things. Things felt pretty good. Obviously, Notre Dame had some home field advantage, even though UConn was actually the home team for that game, but had the fans on their side and the comforts of their home ballpark and really just jumped all over UConn from start to finish. I believe they had eight runs tacked on uh, the Irish had eight runs in the ninth inning. Um, which, you know, just a weird freak thing, not trying to get into the unwritten rules of baseball, just, uh, you know, don't really see a lot of runs that late in the game, but, you know, more power to Notre Dame and the central Michigan game. I was able to watch pretty much all of that. Uh, I thought it was a little closer than the score ended up indicating things just kind of got away from it, uh, from UConn in the, the last three innings or so, but I think. Overall, even though they gave up 40 runs in their last two games, which are, you know, which is bad, it's just really horrendous pitching. There's still some things to get excited about. I know Eric Stock was just a monster all weekend. Reggie Crawford finished the year, uh, his last at bat with a monster home run. Uh, he looks like he's going to be one of the best hitters in the country possibly next season. So there's some things to be excited about. It's a disappointing end to a solid season, but I think this team will benefit from a full year of fans at Elliott Ballpark next next spring, a legit strong non-conference schedule that we don't have to worry about COVID possibly interfering and taking games off the slate and hurting their RPI. So there's still a lot of talent coming back and the, you know, the future is very bright, but just a, a tough ending to what was a pretty solid season for UConn. Yeah. I watched the entire first Michigan game and my big takeaway at the end of it was, wow, they are in absolutely fantastic shape for this regional. I remember talking in the last podcast about how that first game is so important. You don't want to end up in the losers bracket and you have starter Austin Peterson go a long ways and they were already in the driver's seat. So they really didn't have to throw any of their big arms in the bullpen. So more or less all their big guns in the back end, Caleb Worcester threw a couple pitches, but he really was going to be available the next day. All their other guys were pretty fresh too. They were really only down one or two guys in that bullpen. So they were in great shape. They were continuing this streak that they had going through the end of the Big East regular season and into the Big East tournament. They had Ben Kasparius going in game two, who I think most people would agree was probably their best starting pitcher, even if the numbers didn't necessarily indicate it. And I didn't have a chance to watch the second game. I was out with friends. And at one point, one of my friends mentions, oh, UConn's down 7 nothing after the end of the first inning. And it's like, oh, 
that's tough, but you know, it's early, a lot of time to come back from that. Like this team can hit, we know that nothing to be worried about with that. And then it's like, Oh, okay. It's seven, two, uh, it's nine, two it's back. Okay. And then the next update I got was, Oh yeah, it's 19 to like four or something. It quickly snowballed. And even still, I think at a certain point in a game, I remember looking at the pitchers they were using and it's like, okay, Penders is just punting this one because there's no point in blowing through your bullpen in a game that you have no chance at winning. So whatever the final score is going to be, who cares if they score a hundred, it's only one loss. If you still have your bullpen and can win game three, you're in pretty good shape. And then something that always just kind of seems to follow UConn when they get into these elimination games, maybe it's just playing so much and the strain and the fatigue, but they really kind of seem to get sloppy in these elimination games, whether it's the coastal Carolina regional they were in, in 2018, they just kind of fell apart in that final game against Washington or then in the Oklahoma state regional, they got that to that elimination game and they really kind of fell apart at the end of this game. Yeah. They just played really weird in that elimination game against central Michigan, especially in the field. They couldn't field a bunt all of a sudden. They were throwing the ball all over the park. They couldn't just catch the ball, which seemed odd. And they made a nice little comeback attempt, but it kind of felt like they had run out of gas at that point. So I think my initial instincts on this team were kind of right where I remember feeling like it might have been a little optimistic to say this was the most talented team that UConn's had since 2011. But then they won all those games and it's like, okay, maybe I was wrong. But I I really think they were kind of propped up by the Big East competition. Clearly, that was not only a step below what they played in the NCAA tournament. It feels like it was almost two or three steps below, maybe even four. It's just not at the same level it was at the American. I don't know really. I don't think they were overconfident. I just don't think they were as good of a team as maybe it seemed from their record, having won so many games to close the season, having won the Big East tournament more or less pretty easily. So getting to the NCAA tournament is always good. It's not like UConn's a program that's perennially getting to the super regional. So maybe it's a little disappointing not to get to the regional final, but they won one game and the last two games, obviously disappointing, but yeah, you never feel like Jim Pender's team is really ever going to take a step back. They've been, an NCAA tournament team pretty much every single season since 2016 with a couple exceptions in there. And one of those seasons, they should have made the NCAA tournament. So we're probably going to be in the same spot in 11 months, seeing if they can get to another super regional and eventually they're going to break through. I still am very confident that eventually they're going to have a team good enough to get to Omaha. It's just not this year. And I think that's fine. This doesn't need to be a huge referendum on the program program still in great shape. Hopefully next year they can have a normal year where they can get some big crowds into Elliott ballpark and maybe even get into a position where they could host a regional there, because that would be really awesome. For sure. Yeah. I think, I think optimism is absolutely the kind of underlying takeaway from all of this. I was definitely also concerned about the talent shift from going up against NCAA tournament teams to going up again, uh, compared to going up against the big East. But like you said, after that first game, it seemed like, oh, at least maybe they can hang, you know, they can do more, much more than hang with a higher level of talent. Maybe Michigan was not that good. Uh, that That's also a possibility to, to consider, um, you know, they played no non-conference games. So it's really, really hard to exactly understand. And maybe they just weren't that good of a team, I think is also 
something that's possible. Um, yeah, same thing for me with the Notre Dame game, following, following on the phone and just being like, what is going on? But you did hope that they could at least redeem themselves in that Central Michigan game. Um, and, and that just, like you said about the mistakes, it was just such a weird game the way that went down. I mean, it was like uh, Central Michigan pulled ahead. UConn made a little bit of a comeback. Central Michigan like seemed like it was wearing down a little bit and just had s- certain chunks of its lineup just bunting you know, like, like multiple people attempting multiple bunts. Again, maybe there's a lot that, that we have yet to learn about college baseball strategy and its best practices, but certainly an unusual set of circumstances. All, all credit to CMU. They, they also hit, you know, a number of home runs in that game and, and earned the win. But I, I did, you know, have a feeling, or I did think UConn had a chance to come back in that, but then they just kind of petered out towards the end. So it was, it was disappointing, but totally agree about the, the reasons for optimism. You know, do we expect anyone to be leaving early potentially? I mean, I think it's fair to say we're expecting the team to be better next year is what I'm getting at. I think it's just kind of hard with the, the lesser sports, I guess, or the, the non heavily covered sports, basically outside basketball, football, and hockey to really judge what the team is going to look like one year to another, because we just know way less about their recruiting. I mean, we don't know who they're bringing in. It's kind of tougher to judge the development. They always bring in a lot of junior college transfers who really are always just kind of a a hit or miss type thing. You could get guys who have been really, really good for them. And then some guys make the roster and never make impact. So it's tough to say, I'd say they'd lose a decent amount of guys to the draft. I think Ben Kasparius is more or less gone because he's technically in his fourth year of college after sitting out last year, there were potential rumors, I guess that maybe he could go in those five rounds of last year's shortened MLB draft. I think it's a pretty good bet. He goes in the top 10 rounds. Same thing with Pat Winkle. Kyler Fedko, I imagine, gets drafted. And if you're getting picked as a junior, it's hard to turn it down because you're getting a lot more money for a signing bonus. You're one year younger, which is always going to help you in a professional landscape. Your stock probably isn't going to be getting significantly higher, especially a guy like Kyler Fedko. He hit over 400 this year. That's a very high bar to reach. It's not like he's going to hit 450 next year. So go while your stock's high. And then... Speaking of stocks, I don't know what Eric Stock's stock is. Ha <laughs> Shoot. But like with the way he played, I can't imagine an MLB team looking at him with a 20th round pick or with a lot of undrafted money and being like, look, maybe you aren't a major leaguer, but you could be really good organizational depth. Something along those lines. Caleb Worcester, I imagine, gets picked. So UConn always kind of seems to run through these pitchers and they always end up finding someone amazing as we talked about last episode. And then yeah, it, it hurts to lose a lot of the bats that they're going to lose. But again, players develop at different rates. We don't know who they're bringing in. So I think they're prop. I just think they're probably going to be another NCAA tournament team next year. And it's just a matter of how far they go there. Maybe they won't win the Big East regular season and tournament. I don't know. But I I think it's safe to say that just where Jim Penders has gotten the program at this point, they're going to be in contention for both those Big East titles. And they're going to be in the conversation for the Big East tournament. 
yeah, I mean, Dan, we do actually know that there's some help, possibly some significant help on the way in left-hander Frank Mazzucato, who led East Catholic to 25-0 season, Class M state championship this past weekend. Uh, the only problem is, and it's a great problem to have, is that he's skyrocketing up draft boards, could be a, a first-round pick, and end of the first-round pick in this year's MLB draft, which is unheard of for someone from Connecticut. But he said on the record that playing at UConn, that was his dream school. That's where he wanted to play. Obviously, millions of dollars changes that equation a lot. And uh, I don't think anyone would fault him for getting the bag and, and going right into the pros. But uh, if he comes to UConn next year, which I think is unlikely, but still a possibility, that would that could change the trajectory of the whole team. I think it would make the loss of Casparius a lot easier to swallow. So we'll see. It's unlikely, but still a name to keep an eye out for for the MLB draft. Frank Mazzucato, left-hander from from East Catholic. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's, like you said, very, seems unlikely that, that he would, but, I, but I think something else to consider and it's relevant for all of college sports right now is just because of the free, the free year of eligibility um, and also the eased friction of the transfer process um, in that now most students or all students get one um, or uh, so I think that gives UConn the benefit of being able to add guys like Ben Kasparius or um, Austin Peterson was a transfer as well, I believe, who he did not have to sit out a year either, right? So I'm not positive on that. Where did he come from? Purdue? Purdue. We'll get the research team on it. We'll, we'll get the research team on it. But the um, point is, I you know, I think they have a chance to fill some of those holes of who they do end up losing through the transfer market now more than ever. Um, and, you know, very potentially could be a good landing spot for people. You know, if they're thinking like, I've been on some SEC team, a little stuck on the depth chart, I can come to UConn, play, play a good schedule, you know, and and I'll be in the NCAA tournament. It's, you know, and, and they have a good track record of putting people into the pros. There's, there's a sell that I think UConn offers um, so I think something to consider with the talent with, in terms of the expected talent level for next year, um, Frank Mazzucato, I wish you all the best in your professional endeavors and, um, would advise you as a person with a very prominent blog to consider the professional route instead of playing for free might be for the best for you and your family. Yeah, I think there's probably a much higher chance that Jim Penders gives me a call, says he's dug up my film from rec baseball in high school, saw my electric fastball and needs me to come in and be their ace next year. Instead of there's a higher chance of that happening than Frank Mazzucato coming to UConn. In my opinion, you don't turn down $2 million, especially as a pitcher when that arm could go not at any moment, but that's three more years of wear and tear that you have on that arm. You may never get to that second round status again. Frank, take the money and run. Nobody will ever fault you for that. Also, our guy Larry just said in my ear that Austin Peterson was at a community college in 2019, and then he transferred in. 2020 season obviously didn't really – oh, no, no, sorry. He transferred in from Wabash Valley Community College in 2020 – 
and then ended up coming to UConn in 2021. So you don't have to transfer going from junior college to division mm, one. Thank you, is. Larry. <clears throat> there it is. Huge thanks to Larry. So anyway, you can add, I mean, you can add two top pitchers, for example, uh, in, in, a, in a really quick way in the transfer market. And we know that, I mean, obviously everyone wants good pitching. It's the same as like offensive line in football. Everyone does and wants to have good pitching. So obviously there's always competition for it, but uh, we do know that that Jim Penders has a long history of finding gems as we discussed last time. So let's just hope he can do it again and, and start doing it a little bit better too. In other sporting news, we did get a, to have a chance to hear from UConn men's basketball head coach, Dan Hurley. Uh, the Husky freshmen are on campus, uh, or the new freshmen are on campus, and the whole team is. Hurley shared a few quick updates on the team, uh, including, I think, most critically, that a Cook a Cook is looking good in his rehabilitation. Uh, I believe Hurley said great, uh, and that he's expected to be all good by the start of the season. So I think that's, that's incredibly promising. Hurley also unveiled the uh, motivational messaging that he's using with his team right now. Uh, the 4507 reference to the last 45-7 of gameplay for the team, rough loss to Maryland, and the final five or so minutes of the loss to Creighton in the Big East Tournament semifinals. You know, we, we here uh, in the outside of sports world are working on our own little reckoning about how to think about workloads and burnout and, and um, you know, managing your time and flexibility. Dan Hurley shared his thoughts about dedication to work and whether or not on July 3rd, you should be going out to buy things for your barbecue or whether you should be thinking about the last 45 minutes and seven seconds of the last basketball season. You know, this is the kind of stuff that can be a little controversial, especially when you have to have them explain it out like that. I do think at the same time, it is good to um, motivate your team around the idea that you are really, uh, people do remember your team based on what that postseason finish is. Um, and so even though there was a lot of excitement about that last season for UConn, their tournament performance left a lot to be desired, even in the Big East tournament and in the NCAA tournament. So I'm, I'm optimistic the team and the players take the wholesome parts of the message to heart. I hope they do find time to rest and relax as necessary, but um, at the same time, solid, you know, off-season motivational ploy, I would say, from Dan Hurley. Yeah, it's not going away. We're going to have a lot of 4507 talk for the next six, eight months. I, I fully expect we'll have t-shirts, hats, you know, hoodies, the whole shebang in the, uh, the old co-op by, uh, I don't know, probably come come October or November. So just a matter of time, but no, I, I think I agree with what you said, Amon. I, I think it is for, for the team to kind of hammer home those last 45 minutes. That was just some, some bad basketball, honestly, compared to how we've seen that we saw that team play throughout the season. Uh, it's definitely a certain type of motivational tactic. I'm not surprised that Hurley's going that route. And uh, you know, I think he's wired a little differently than, than everyone else. So I'm not surprised that he's constantly obsessing over it and, and thinking about it as he heads into the new season, because that's part of what makes him a really good basketball coach. But he did say that 
I'm, I'm not sure everyone on the team, but a good chunk of the team was able to kind of go back to their family. I know a cook, a cook went back to New Hampshire and, and caught up with some of his friends and, and family. And Hurley said that was a really refreshing, like recharge the batteries type moment for him. Uh, Adama Sinogo went back to Mali for the first time in what I believe was a while. Uh, and Hurley said that that was a great experience for him too. So it's good to see that Hurley is, you know, obsessing over <laughs> those last 45 minutes and, and thinking about what he can get, what he can do to be a better coach and help the team improve. But the players are taking some time to get away, especially after a crazy season where they were pretty much all around each other nonstop just to try and limit the spread of uh, COVID, limit their exposure. So it's good to see that the team is getting out, being around their friends and family, people that they want to be around, uh, relaxing, unwinding, and hopefully they can come back with, with a good mindset uh, and come back ready to work for the upcoming season. If I'm not mistaken, this is Hurley's second full off season as like the established head coach, right? Or is this his, his third? Either way, I'm pretty sure two off seasons ago, if that was his first full established year, like where he had the whole team and wasn't trying to like win the team over, didn't they have the biggie or not the AAC tournament trophy that they carried around? Oh no, that had to be two years ago because it was their final year in the AAC. Yeah, yep. where they carried around the tr- picture of the AAC regular season trophy everywhere that they went. So it was a different off season tactic that he had. So I guess the last two normal off seasons he's had, he's had some motivational tactic. I think it probably just keeps things fresh. You always got to be pushing for that next hill, that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think we, we might be a little sick of 4507 on the outside by the start of the season. So I can't imagine what it's going to be like inside that program wanting to get rid of that memory i'll be honest i think i've completely blacked out the memory of both those games like i don't i can't actually recall anything about that creighton game maybe that's just a me problem but like i i know that rj got hurt and things really fell apart at that point but i honestly just can't piece together really what happened and then the maryland game was just such a terrible long thing I think I've just kind of like blocked that out too. I don't know. I just really don't remember that 4507 that well. Well, that's a personal, that's a personal choice. Um, and a good one. Uh, again, speaking of healthy habits, um, sometimes it's good to forget about, about certain things. Yeah. I mean, I think with the Creighton game, it's the, the thing about these 45 minutes and seven seconds is that there are, there are some explanations. It's not like they kind of out of nowhere played like crap. First, James Booknight had been hurt, injured, whatever. He had the cramping against Maryland that was, or against Maryland, against Marquette that that looked really dramatic. Again, against he had the he had the cramping. It was not against Marquette. He got injured originally against Marquette, but against DePaul that looked really, uh, you know, like he had to be carried out of that game. Remember, um, and and then the next night playing the next game. So. There's James Booknight in that status, not, not fully healthy. Uh, there's also the fact that, right, in the Creighton game, RJ Cole goes down at the end. Got to imagine that would have helped make a difference with UConn up as that game is winding down. Uh, an unfortunate end to things. So there are, there are some reasons for, for that to happen. Again, I think it's 
fine to do the motivation thing. But from our perspective, we can certainly see how, how, did, how it did go down like that. I'll also just add, you know, what we do know that as of June 1st, the recruiting period opened up. And so Hurley and his staff have been able to get out on the trail. Um, we've seen a lot of reports of uh, high level recruits making visits to UConn and, and players getting offers. We're not going to get into naming names right now, right here, but I do think it's worth just mentioning that we have seen an uptick in recruiting from Dan Hurley each and every year. There's a really great freshman class coming in this season. Um, the talent levels are important. It's, it's the, you know, we, we haven't been in the, we had not seen UConn in the past bringing in uh, guys like James Booknight and, and Adama Sinogo, you know, who can have immediate impact because of being really high level talents. Um, so I think just that's something to keep, keep tabs on. They're going to be really getting after it. We know that we can count on Dan Hurley to work on that, do well. He's got great ties. This is going to be a big, big off season in terms of recruiting for Hurley at this time. It's like, um, you know, the team has taken a step up, but they're expecting to take another one and getting the full, you know, benefits of the big East and everything that comes with that. So I, I do have high hopes for this team on the recruiting trail this off season in terms of uh, class of 2022 as well, just to throw it out there. We're going to take a quick break and then talk about some bigger news in the world of college sports. All right, folks, in the world of college football, we received some exciting news this past week. It appears that the college football playoff will be expanding. Huge news for the institution of college football after being a four-team playoff for the handful of years since they made the change from the BCS. Uh, the field is now expanded to 12. The top four teams will have a bye, and or the, there will be six guaranteed spots for the top six conference winners. It is some people's belief that this will be a more egalitarian version of the college football playoff. Uh, it is most people's belief that it'll be a more profitable college football playoff. Uh, that's for sure. Some people are saying that it is hurting UConn football's national championship hopes and that this is actually a big blow for the Husky football program. I was wondering what you guys think about that. I definitely like based on the way that this proposed plan is structured. Theoretically, those people are correct. It, it, it is harder. It is technically harder for UConn to make the college football playoff and win saw said college football playoff, but a little bit of reality, <laughs> a little bit of reality for everyone here. We're trying to go through the football roster we, we did this before we did the podcast. We were trying to just see if we recognized any names on the roster just from, from carryover because uh, even though UConn is coming off that vaunted 2020 New York Times National Championship, uh, which they won last season, they were they, – they, I think Randy Edsel's won, what, five games, four games since he's taken over as head coach, if we can get Larry on that off the top of my head. I, I just – I understand where they're coming from and and the fact that Basically, the, the biggest drawback for this new system is that a team like Notre Dame, another ind independent football powerhouse, 
if they go undefeated, check all the boxes, they basically are priced out of six of the seeds because they can't be one of the highest ranked conference champions. And it's definitely an interesting way to, to think about that, but I don't think that's an issue for UConn football anytime soon. And Larry just got back to me. Edsel's won six games during his time as UConn's head coach. So probably not enough to qualify for the college football playoff, but I don't know. Those people are definitely right. It's definitely a a true thing to say, Um, but UConn wasn't winning the American anytime soon. There was obviously a chance that similar to that 2011 or 2010 Fiesta Bowl season where there was just a lot of tiebreakers and things that fell in UConn's favor. And that ended up with them winning the big East, winning the tiebreaker and ending up in a a BCS bowl. But uh, the odds of all those stars aligning again in what honestly is probably a better football conference than the end of that big East uh, era was are just so unlikely that I I don't think it's worth worrying about. There probably is another good UConn football season coming in our lifetime hopefully and we'll cross that bridge when we get there i I hate to say it it's you know it's good for business but this playoff structure if it goes through and if notre dame truly isn't going to get a tie-in you know what that means conference realignment season (laughs) and i'll just paint a picture for everyone really really quick and and we'll just leave it at that we don't need to get into it but notre dame needs an automatic tie-in they're tight with the ACC the ACC wants one more team to balance things out UConn's one of the only logical options I'll, I'll say it and it could be for for football only it could be for all sports who knows it's going to get weird things are going to get really weird in college athletics in the next four or five years so we'll see how things go but overall it's it's exciting for college football fans casual football fans um but as a UConn football fan, I wouldn't be really too worried about whether UConn's going to make the, the college football playoff or not. I think the focus is just winning games, being competitive in games, and, and making a bowl game. It's like the famous Jim Mora rant of playoffs. We're just trying to win a game. UConn's literally just trying to win a game. Why are we even thinking about making the college football playoff? Uh, playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. Although I will say to Madigan's conspiracy theory there, if somehow Dave Benedict manages to not only get UConn into the Big East, but also finesses an ACC football only invite after building this independent schedule that has a lot of ACC teams on it, it would be very easy to transfer those over. We may just have to rename the school the University of Benedict. Like I or we might have to change the mascot to the University of Connecticut Fighting Benedicts or something. That would probably be the greatest feat in athletic director history because you're getting the stupid football money, you're getting the exposure and culture fit that comes with being in the Big East. And I think most importantly, you get to rub it heavily in the fans of the AAC. It would just be absolutely incredible. But I actually don't think it makes any difference at all if UConn's independent or in the AAC with this new format. As an objective observer, this is great for the sport of college football. I think the arguments that expanding the playoffs are stupid because only two teams are going to win anyways and these games aren't going to be close. I think we're going to see that's not true in 
probably from year one. And I love the argument that the expanded playoff is going to water down the postseason because these games are no longer do or die. Like, yeah, okay. You're not going to watch Auburn and Alabama play in week 12 to decide who wins the sec. Sure. I'm absolutely confident that's true. And just it, I don't think it really matters that UConn is in a conference or not in a conference because the two times they have won the big East in 2007, that is statistically the best UConn team, according to Bill Connolly's SP plus ever in their FBS era, they were ranked 45th. There were seven other non BCS teams, including three other big East teams ranked higher than UConn that season. So if they were picking the six high, most highly rated conference championships, UConn wouldn't have been in that field. If we go to 2010, when they made the Fiesta Bowl, that one's even worse because, yeah, they made the Fiesta Bowl, but they were not all that rated highly by S&P Plus. They were 70th. So they were significantly further down the line, and there were 17 non-Power 5 equivalent programs ahead of them, including, like, most of the Big East Conference. I don't know how that worked out, but... Like most of the big East is ahead of UConn. So that's another year that they got into the BCS bowl because that's the way bowl tie-ins worked back then. It would be one thing if the AAC got an automatic bid into the conference playoffs or the college football playoffs. That's not the case. It's just the six most highly rated champions. UConn would basically need to be undefeated and win the conference title. And if they go 12 and 0 as an AAC team, it's probably numbers wise, very similar to going 12 and 0 as an independent with the schedules that they have, especially considering it's probably like they have no shot of ever being undefeated within the next decade. So you're looking way, way down the line when their independent schedules are probably going to be just fantastic. So 12 and 0 independent team playing mostly power five schools and a couple other smaller beatable teams or playing AAC and a one or two Big Ten or ACC teams every year, I feel like that's kind of a wash. And I think the more important part is that UConn football is never going undefeated ever. So I don't even think it's really a consideration. We're playing a different sport than most of college football. And I think that's just the important thing. Previously, the Power Five and the Group of Five were two completely different sports and people just didn't want to acknowledge it. Now, at least one team in the Group of Five gets to play the same sport as the Power Five. But let's be honest. I mean, Coastal Carolina had a great year and finished, I forget how high they were ranked, but we've seen it. The committee is always going to rank the non-Power Five teams just far enough away so that they're not going to be able to get into the college football playoff. You could expand it to 64 teams. And if you don't have automatic bids, they're going to find a way to leave the G five teams out because that's just the way the committee works. Unless you're doing it by the computer, G five is just a different world. And especially for UConn, again, we're just trying to win games here. We're just trying to be competitive. We're trying to not lose by triple digits. Every single time we step on the field, we shouldn't even be thinking about winning national championships, making the college football playoff until we can make a bowl once, once yeah. until we can win six games in not a span of three years, 
but in a span of even two years would be an upgrade at this point. So to even like argue that UConn is somehow a loser in this new college football playoff format, it, it doesn't even matter. This would, it'd be like worrying if, if the fact that I'm a communist is going to impact my NBA career, potentially like, (laughs) It just doesn't matter. I'm not a communist, but just to come up with a really <laughs> random example, um, you know, oh, I, I, get, um, I get a little airplane sickness, so I don't know if I can be an NBA player, so maybe I shouldn't pursue that. Another, another bad example. I, I think, yeah, the, so the point is there, there are numerous tiers within this large clump that's called FBS, um, and, and as we're getting to UConn is at the exact bottom of it and the people, the teams that are most affected by this change, I think are, they're kind of like your, your, your power five, like pretty good teams like, um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Auburn, those kinds of teams that are just going to have a chance to stay alive a little bit longer every year in the hunt. And, you know, they could even go in there and beat Bama one year and, and make a title run. Um, so I think, you know, the path is like a lot clearer for some of those teams. Uh, and then I think for a small handful of G5 teams, like Boise State, UCF, BYU, Cincinnati, maybe, you know, the fact that there's one spot at least means that it's, it's a possibility for them. I mean, they're probably still going to be like a low seed in this in this tournament. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not likely to have a chance to win, but at least they will get a chance. Maybe they can get a win and sneak out an, an upset, and and it's you know a huge moment for the program. But I, I do think it's good for those schools, your Houston's and UCF's, to be able to feel a lot stronger about your path. And maybe it also does help you down the road in terms of helping your coach, but. The thing is that the reason the division exists is because the money difference is so significant and that's, that's not going to change. Um, And so as long as those teams can offer so much more money, so much more better conditions, better access to talent, um, better exposure for players, better development opportunities, uh, barbers in the, in the, in the practice facilities, those are all going to be things that, that give teams an advantage that um, in most cases, the group of five really won't be able to touch. So um, yeah, I, I, I certainly push back on the idea that this will be some huge equalizer. And then, yeah, given who the the most impacted teams are here, the fact that you're talking about UConn, like in this in the scope of this, it says more about you than it does about anything else. That you have like this weird obsession because you're a fan of South Florida or Tulsa football, and feel like, and you have a uh, a joke Twitter meme account where you uh, tag people to make fun of Dan Hurley. If those people want to think about UConn and try and act like this hurts them, by all means, uh, if you're a UConn fan and you are thinking about this, uh, you know, please, please get in touch with us and we will give you a list of 25 much more pressing matters to consider when it comes to the state of the football program. Overall, I think structurally we feel really good about the, st- the where where the program is. They've got a schedule that we're excited about. We just found out the rent is going to be open 
at, at full capacity, thank goodness, for every game this year. So, you know, structurally, we're, we have every reason to be pretty happy with, with the, the program. Um, it's, it's really more tactically and strategically and um, uh, recruiting-wise, or no, not recruiting, but strategy and tactics-wise, what's going on with the team that I would say would be my top 10 concerns if we're talking about UConn football and not the format of the college football playoff changing. The only thing I'm disappointed about is my favorite part of college football used to be watching how the AAC team would somehow get screwed and then watching all those AAC fans have a meltdown over it. So, I mean, it is still possible that that'll happen. And yeah, let's be honest, whoever that sixth team, that six conference champion is, let's not act like they're not going to get paired with Alabama every single season, every single year. Or if it's not Alabama, it's going to be Clemson. And if it's not Clemson, it's going to be whatever that like second tier of teams behind those two that has one of their best teams ever. It's going to be one of those teams. They're going to get murdered in the first round, probably every single year. I will thoroughly enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, it can't be outside of the results. Like the football program is in a good spot. Although I did look through the roster. It's kind of confusing trying to figure out exactly what's going on with the roster. I don't know how they're, changing the years on every single player because obviously last year they didn't play so last year's freshmen are they still freshmen are they redshirt freshmen are they now listed as sophomores i went through and i don't really know how much this technically means because i don't know where certain guys are listed but at the moment they have 44 true freshmen listed they have 14 redshirt freshmen 10 sophomores, 17 redshirt sophomores, seven juniors, three redshirt juniors, seven seniors, and three graduate players. So if you're doing the math, they have 58 players listed as freshmen one way or another and 37 non-freshmen, which we are in year five, is it, of the Randy Edselera? We will be going into year five of the Randy Edselera, and you have 20 juniors and seniors it's a little tough to be optimistic about that considering the whole reason UConn went one in 10 a couple years ago was because they were playing all the freshmen. So are those guys now juniors? Are they sophomores? Either way, that's not really how you want a roster balance. And it kind of feels like that's the way the roster has been kind of constructed for the last three or four years. Now, is that just because of the weird, the weird, however you list it with COVID or is that just how the roster is built? I kind of think it's a little bit of both, but I'd lead more towards the second part. Well, we do, um, as we, I think maybe discussed in the last podcast, there was that rash of people that left after the last season that they did play. And a good chunk of those were older players. Um, and then there were, you know, another handful that left this, this season um, or are still in the portal right now who are, who are weighing out their options. Some people left because UConn was not playing. So, you know, totally fair. Someone like, well, don't want to name names, but there were, you know, certainly people leaving. And then I think, yeah, the, there may be some people who are listed as sophomores and maybe they're in their third year. You know, we, we do need to have the conversation eventually about when we start to have real expectations for this team. I was actually um, 
just for fun, listening to some of our old podcasts. And we were talking about last season, 2020, being the one where we were expecting to need to see some signs of something. So they got a little bit of a pass on, on that one because of a global health crisis. But, you know, look, again, this year we do expect to see an improved product. We have a schedule that's exciting. Um, I think if, if you look at it, there are games that um, there are games that you want to go to games that um, you know, that there are people, you know, people who went to those schools, you know, that the players, you know, have likely have friends or people from high school who they know that are playing at those schools and a good smattering of, you know, like relevant uh, P5 opponents, I would say as well. They'll be at Fresno State uh, during week zero. So that's a little bit of a tough one. Fresno State's a good team, but home opener against Holy Cross should be good. I think we can we can expect UConn to, to take care of business there. And if not, that's when we start to get into the, the worry zone again. But, um, you know, again, schedule looks pretty good. They're hosting Purdue after that. They'll be at Army. They'll make trips to Vanderbilt and UMass. They'll host Yale, make another trip to Clemson before visiting UCF and hosting Houston. So solid schedule there. I think we at least owe them the the Holy Cross game, but they need to, you know, they need to not do the Holy Cross game of 2017 because we're going to have that hype machine going, you know, the way it works. We know how this works over the course of the off season we talk ourselves into the possibility of them achieving the best possible version of their, uh, you know, of their potential for the season. So, you know, wonder where that, where that takes us, but it'll be all for naught if they come out looking like crap against Holy Cross. So we'll, we'll see what, what goes down on the field, but overall there's some excitement brewing around UConn football, I'd say. I'm excited. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm excited. I think there needs to be some wholesale changes on the offensive end. Uh, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But I, I think that needs to be overhauled completely before there's going to be any real, real sense of progress with this team. But hopefully Randy and the coaching staff can prove me wrong. But I think there, there is some real talent. I just don't know if the, the offense is going to be able to highlight that talent enough to keep up with what other teams are doing. I'll leave it at that. I will say, despite my little rant earlier about not having any idea who like most of this roster is, which I is obviously like a lot of that's a product of not having a season last season, but you do look at the roster and a lot of the older guys are all people who not only names you do recognize, but also guys who played big roles in the past and guys who are also just good. I mean, you kind of go through the roster, DJ Morgan, diamond Harrell, two really solid players for this team. The last time they played Omar Fort, Kevin Mensa, same thing. Dylan Harris, Ryan Van Demark, Jay Rose, Ian Swenson, Cameron Hairston, Jeremy Lucian, Kayvon Jones, Travis Jones, Jonathan Pace, Luol Ugek. Harrison Marisov, Terrence Gagne, is that how you say I knew it? All of, I knew all of those names. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, like, these are all the older guys on the roster, guys who have played a lot, guys who have shown 
at different points that they can play at this level. So maybe even if you don't have a ton of older guys, I mean, I feel like a lot of those late Diaco Pascaloni teams, you had like 20 or 25 seniors and maybe 15 of those guys were people who like barely played, maybe got a couple special team snaps game. So at the very least, pretty much all of these upperclassmen are names that you'll recognize or our grad transfers coming in like Trey Wortham, Sidney Walker, Robert Burns, all those sorts of things. So I think maybe the roster balance in terms of the classes isn't exactly where you'd want it, but they do seem to have a pretty solid group of upperclassmen, again, that have played a lot, that know the system at this point. I mean, they better know the system at this point, that are clearly Edsel guys at this point because they've stayed here this long because clearly so many didn't. So I think it's probably a pretty good sign that they didn't have another wave of mass transfers. And if you do look at, it wasn't every single one and it probably wasn't most of them, but a lot of the guys that did transfer out two years ago were guys recruited by Diaco. They weren't Edsel guys. So whether or not it's good that that guys are transferring, that can be debated. It seems like these are all Edsel guys. Edsel's obviously bringing in his own recruits. So I mean, I do think there should be expectations this year. And I think the expectations should be to just show substantial progress, to look like a division one FBS football team, something that they have very clearly lacked. And even the last season they played that Illinois game. I mean, they looked competent for a lot of that game and the season kind of faded as the year went on. I think they did have a lot of injuries and just other issues going on. So just be competitive. I, we say this all the time, be competitive, look like a real football team, just show progress. You don't need to be in a bowl. You don't need to even be a bowl contender to a certain point, but just give us a reason to think that this isn't another lost season. Don't give the excuses that we need to be bigger, stronger, faster. Don't give the excuses that we just need to wait for our younger players to develop. We can see that we clearly have guys who have played before. So if you're then just playing freshman again, it kind of makes me feel like you don't know what you're doing. So yeah, I think there are issues on the offensive side that I don't feel great about. I do think there are enough options at the quarterback position between Michael Leon, who is getting a lot of praise from the coaching staff two years ago before he got hurt as the starting quarterback. Steve Krajewski, who's been decent in his action. I mean, he played an entire game with a broken collarbone, didn't he? Like, that's a plus in my book. I thought Jack Zergiatis was probably better than a lot of people give him credit for as a true freshman. He obviously wasn't great, but he had some flashes. And then whoever else they have on the roster at the quarterback position that we just simply haven't seen or heard about. I think they figure that out. And then they have, as we saw two years ago, great wide receivers that made a lot of plays despite shoddy quarterback play two years ago. Kevin Mensa, who just eats up yards. He is just a grinder back. And that is a great thing to have, especially at UConn. And then some really good defensive players like both the Joneses, Luol Ugwak, Dylan Harris, those guys like you have some pieces there to be at least a competitive football team. So as long as they show substantial progress and it's not just the Edsel excuse train after 43 to 17 losses, I think I'd honestly be pretty happy with that. I mean, I, I can even get more specific than that. I would say we want them. You got to beat Holy cross. You got to beat Yale and UMass. You know, that's like the absolute baseline of expectations. 
I think Yale will be a lot harder than we are even understanding right now, but I think still it's uh, something that should be expected of, of UConn at this time. I was going to bring up the QB situation too, though, because while there is some talent and promise there, it's still a very green and unproven group, and it is a very important position. Um, we also know the position has maybe not been managed the best lately. And then bringing it back to Madigan's original point, um, we also know that the offense has not been managed even to a point where it is maximizing the talent on hand, which is um, perhaps most disappointing. And also, you know, lost two good offensive coordinators very quickly for some reason. Let's not, you know, forget about some of those things. But I do think with the way that we know that the offensive line has gotten better, that it could be something decent. Thinking about the makeup of this roster right now, I think it's that they, you know, really should be decent within like two years if these guys stick through to their senior year and this group, you know, make is able to make it happen. But we, we, we absolutely need them to show out better this year. Plenty of reasons to believe it could happen, but in the meantime, we will just have to wait and see. Yeah. Like you said, you got to win those three games. If you're, I think Yale should probably be the most competitive of those three. As you said, the last time they played UMass, UMass didn't even look like they knew how to play football. Like UMass was one of the worst teams I've ever seen on a football field. And I watched every single game of the year. UConn went one and 10 and gave up roughly 600 yards through the air on defense. So that's saying something. I think at least those two games, the Holy Cross and the UMass ones need to be comfortable wins. I don't even think it's good enough just to pull out wins in those games. I think they need to be comfortable wins. And then I think if you can beat Yale, that's probably just good in general because above all else, they're a tough kind of hard-nosed, old-fashioned type of football team. And I think that's tough to go up against, especially considering where UConn is as a program, having not played in a year, but at the same time, Yale also hasn't played in a year. So we don't really know where they are. And then if you can get a win out of the rest of your eight games, if you can get two wins out of the rest of your eight games, you're four and eight, you're five and seven. That's really, really not that bad. So again, we have such low expectations here and yet somehow they come in below every single year. So I'm still a little hesitant to get my expectations up. But I think the biggest thing is we just don't know what this UConn football team is going to look like. I think they very easily could compete for a bowl game. And I think they could very easily be in a battle against all three of those FCS schools. So we'll just have to see once the season kicks off on August 28th. I just think I agree with Dan. I think three wins is the floor. I am not confident that they're going to beat Yale. I, I just I just think Yale is is kind of good, but I think they could they could get three wins. However, they get them, uh, that would be a pretty solid foundation. Anything over three, four to five wins would be a really strong season and something that's that's worth getting excited about for next year. Um, but I think the first game or two is going to be really rough, uh, just because there's a lot of people that have experience but it's from games that were you know two years ago now so there's going to be some rust that the other teams may or may not have just because they played more recently so it'll be really interesting to see uh still have major concerns about the offense like I said but really excited to watch another year Kevin Mensa because he's 
probably one of the one of the better running backs that UConn has had in a long time and and a really special player. So hopefully he's able to put together a good season and, and have a shot of playing on Sundays. Might be all we have to root for towards the end of the season. So we'll see. Does he have the program rushing record? Didn't he set that a couple of years ago? Or is he like one of a few players to have 3,000 yard seasons? He's like very high in He's up there. Record. I don't think he broke it though. I think we'll get Larry on it. But if I'm going to make a guess, I want to say it's like a, that could be a, um, who's the guy I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Terry Colley for it some reason. It has to be Donald Brown. You think Donald Brown is the career rushing leader? It wasn't Terry Colley. Should have been if he didn't get hurt, but. Brown had 2000 in a single year. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. There's no, I, I would be shocked if it was Terry Colley. Terry Colley's second and Donald Brown is first. Okay. <laughs> Mensa is fifth right now. He needs, he needs 1200 yards to pass Donald Brown. That's pretty good. That's, that's somewhat doable. Possibly. That's not out of the question. That's very much attainable. He's gotten a thousand exactly. Oh, basically the last two years. So he would need to, uh, he's gotten 1,013 and 1,045, very consistent averages, 4.5, 4.6 yards per carry. But yeah, he's going to need, he would need 1,200 to pass Donald Brown. That's something to look out for. Two FCS, uh, two FCS teams on the schedule though. Two 200-yard games against them. And then that it becomes, I mean, not that that's easy, but this is an easier schedule, you could argue, than that he's ever had. So there, there is a path to it. It's probably unlikely, but who knows? We've seen crazier things with, with UConn's offense, right? We have seen crazier things. That is for sure. That's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening.